Jude verses 1 through 4. Jude is servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, being very eager to write to you of our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For admission has been secretly gained by some who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly persons who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude begins his little letter and ends it with very comforting words for Christians. Verse 1 describes these people to whom he's writing, Christians, us, for example, those who are called, loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Notice those three verbs. They're all passive, called, loved, kept. The emphasis falls on God's action. God calls. God loves. God keeps. We are called. We are loved. We are kept. Jude is very eager to begin his letter with a word of of assurance, of confidence, of keeping. Then look at the end, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory. The same emphasis here, the keeping power of God for his people. So at the beginning and at the end, you have this stress on God's exertion of his omnipotence to keep his people for that great day when they'll be presented blameless to God in him. But in the middle of this letter, sandwiched in between those two emphases on God's gracious keeping and our security comes something very different. God's concern in the middle is not to make believers feel content, but to make them feel vigilant. He shows in verse 1 the electing love of God, in verse 25 the unsurpassed power of God, both working together to keep us safe, And then he thrusts us into danger in the middle of this letter and tells us to fight. Verse 3, Beloved, being very eager to write to you of our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, the assured victory of the believing church does not mean that we don't have to fight in order to win. We do. Just because the commander-in-chief comes on board and says with great authority, great confidence, great know-how, tomorrow we will win this war, doesn't mean that the soldiers throw their weapons overboard. It means that when they get up in the morning... They pick up their weapons with great confidence and hit the beaches with certainty and valor. 
When God promises that his church will be kept from defeat, his purpose is not that we lay down our sword, but that we pick it up and fight in the assurance that in his strength, the victory is God's. Wherever the promised security of God is used to justify going AWOL, we may be sure there is a traitor in the ranks. So God's way, as we see it in Jude, is to give his people tremendous God-founded confidence in their victory and then thrust them into battle where they must fight in order to win. So the main point of this letter, it seems to me, is verse 3, which I would paraphrase as the main doctrine that I would like to talk about, namely, it is the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And under that doctrine, I would mention four headings. One, there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. Two, this faith is worth contending for. Three, repeatedly, the threat to this faith will arise from within the church. And fourth, therefore, it is the duty of every believer to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let's look at these four statements and see where they come from in the scripture. There is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. Sometimes we use the word faith for the feeling of trust in our hearts. Other times we use the word faith for that body of doctrine or truths about the person that we trust. And that's the usage here in Jude. The faith is that body of teaching or doctrine or truth about God and Christ and man and the world that we refer to as the faith. Now, it is very common today to talk about Christianity being a relationship. Hear everybody say that. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus. And that's true. And the reason we need to stress it is because nobody is saved by believing a list of doctrines. The devil believes all the doctrines you do. Probably better than you do. And he's not saved. Orthodoxy is no guarantee of salvation. And so it's right to stress a living, personal union with Jesus Christ, a personal resting in him as our sufficiency. But if we carry that relational, experiential dimension of Christianity so far that we downplay the essentiality of a body of truth that is part of Christianity, we make a grave error that I think this text is written to help us overcome. There is a body of truth about God and Christ and man and the world which is essential to Christianity. If it is lost or distorted, it's not just minds that go wrong. Hearts go wrong. Trust gets misplaced. The inner life of faith has very much to do with the so-called statement of faith. That we develop. Where the doctrine goes bad, hearts go bad. There is a body of doctrine to be preserved. Now, the evidence for this in verse 3 is this phrase, the faith 
once for all delivered to the saints. Now that word delivered implies that it was handed down to the church from the apostles and they didn't think it up. The church didn't make up its doctrine. The apostles and their close associates are speaking with God's authority and they deliver to the church truth. Paul calls it in Acts 20, a whole counsel of God. He calls it in Romans 6, the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There was a, a body of truth that the apostles delivered to the church. We're not to add to it or take from it. It's there to be received. Another very crucial phrase is this one, once for all delivered, here in verse 3. Once for all. Here we are 2,000 years after this delivering that comes from the apostles to the church. And we are surrounded by hundreds of people and sects and cults who offer us new revelation to finish off the Bible or correct the Bible. Muhammad gives us his Koran and uh, Joseph Smith gives us his Book of Mormon and Sun Moon gives us his divine principle. All of them saying without this book, Revelation isn't finished. And you won't be able to handle the Bible. Well, I want you to note very carefully that Jude taught that the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. God's revelation concerning the doctrinal content of our faith is finished. It's done, according to Jude. Anyone who comes along with claims of new revelation to uh, supplement or to correct the body of doctrine revealed once for all through the apostles is against Scripture. The reason we have a Bible, a book, with covers, is that in the second and third century, the church recognized that God had spoken decisively in Jesus Christ and through his apostolic spokesman and that it was over and that now we have to start judging standards by that standard. And so they closed the Bible. The canon is shut. It's once for all delivered. In this apostolic truth. We need to stress this today. I think because we live in a day where this word faith is almost taken to mean faiths. It is singular. There is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is very fashionable today. Especially in scholarly circles. To talk about theologies in the New Testament. Luke had his theology. Paul had his theology. John had his theology. Matthew had his theology. And to put the emphasis very heavily on diversity among the inspired writers. Sometimes to the point where it is hopeless to reconcile these theologies. Well, there is diversity. There's no doubt about that. They don't all talk about God and Christ in identical ways. But I would plead for a new generation of students who take very seriously Jude 3 and think hard about the implications of the word faith once for all delivered. 
There is an apostolic faith. There is a body of doctrine that hangs together and we shouldn't add to it or take from it, but receive it, bore into it, understand it, delight in it, worship the God of it and contend for it. Second point, this faith is worth contending for. Last week we read Romans 14. Romans 14 says, One man esteems one day above another. Another man esteems all days alike. Let every man be fully convinced in his own mind and don't condemn or despise each other if you disagree. And here we hear Jude saying, Fight for the faith. Contend for it. From which I infer... There is a body of doctrine that's worth fighting for. And there are secondary applications of this doctrine which are not worth fighting for. That we should tolerate a broad latitude of application. But mark it down. The emphasis in this text is that there is a truth worth contending for. There is a truth worth dying for. That's really hard for us today to feel. I I don't know if... If you're like me, if you're average, I think we can imagine in our noblest hours dying for a person, my child, my wife, a friend, people, we could die for people. But facts, statements, truths, die for for those, that's not, that doesn't fit. Life is more valuable than truth. That would be a real easy way to describe the relativistic day in which we live. But it hasn't always been that way. 1555 to 1558, Mary, Queen of England, burned at the stake 288 reformers. People like John Hooper and John Rogers and Roland Taylor and Robert Farrar and John Bradford and Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer and Thomas Cranmer. And you know why they got burned alive? Because they wouldn't agree with the statement that Christ is bodily in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper. Just that. They died. Ridley had to have the the brands relit three times before they would kill him. For a fact, a truth, a doctrine. The blood of the martyrs is a powerful testimony that faith once for all delivered to the saints is worth contending for. But there's evidence for that right here in the text. We don't need to go to the martyrs, though they... Bring it closer to home. Look at verse 3. Jude says that what he's really writing about is about our common salvation. Now, note that connection between salvation and the faith. He says, since I am eager to write about our common salvation, it is necessary to urge you to contend for the faith. What's that imply? That implies that when the faith is at stake, salvation's at stake. If truth is lost, salvation can be lost. The apostles and reformers were willing to die for facts, doctrines, statements, truths 
because they knew that ultimately salvation and that means people and that means the glory of God are at stake. And we live in a day that is so anti-intellectual, anti-academic, anti-doctrine and so relational and personal that all we can think about when anybody gets doctrinal is cold intellectualism. We're just miles away from the Reformation where they burn in their hearts and at the stake for doctrine. I want us at Bethlehem to gain a whole new sense of the preciousness of biblical doctrine. We need to know as a church the depth and beauty and breadth and value of doctrinal truth of Scripture. One of the most beautiful ways to read this is in ordination statements of faith written by Tom Steller two years ago and Steve Roy in the past couple of weeks. Just ask them for their statements of faith. They'll give them to you. And there you will see a body of doctrine that's worth dying for. Just about every sentence worth dying for. And I don't know how to overestimate the value to me and to this church to have people like Tom Steller and Steve Roy who have bored their way into the center of this unified truth and are working their way out into its unified extensions and committed to teach it to us. It's an amazing gift, and tonight we're going to have a great time thanking the Lord for it. Third point, this faith is repeatedly threatened from within the church. Bloody Mary was a professing Christian, not a barbarian. The worst enemies of Christian doctrine are professing Christians who do not hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You remember that great, beautiful, moving speech that Paul delivered to the pastors of Ephesus in Acts 20? He said, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The wolves who pervert the faith are insiders. They are pastors, missionaries, church leaders, denominational officials, deacons, seminary teachers. The biggest enemy of the faith is not paganism. It's not secularism. Look at Jude 4. Jude gives the reason why he's telling them to contend for the faith. He says, the reason is because admission has been secretly gained by some who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly persons who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So the threat to the faith at this church was coming from inside. They had gotten their way in to the church. And what they were probably saying was something like this. You'll remember this from Second Peter a couple years ago. We are saved by faith, by grace. God's grace is what saved us. Therefore, what you do, especially what you do with your body, 
is not relevant to your standing in grace. In fact, if you sin, the grace of Christ is only magnified the more. And in doing that, they take the grace of Christ and turn it against the commands of Christ and in effect nullify the lordship of Christ, which is what he says. They deny. I don't think they outwardly said, Jesus is not Lord, Jesus is not master. They would have been out on their ear. These are insiders. The way they deny the mastery and the lordship of Jesus is by teaching that his commands don't count because he's gracious. That's relevant today. Real relevant inside the church. Saved by grace, our standing is unaffected by whether we follow him as Lord. There are seminaries built on that heresy. Paul said in verse 17, I mean Jude said in verse 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who set up divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So Jude sees what's happening in this church as a fulfillment of the apostles' statements. Maybe he's thinking about what Paul said there in Acts 20. They're going to rise up from among you and say perverse things and lead people away. As many tears as it must have cost the Apostle Paul, have you ever noticed that every letter he wrote is a letter of contention with believers? He never contended with outsiders when he wrote. He went into synagogues and contended briefly till they were out on his ear. But most of his letters, all of them, I think, are written to deal with contending for the faith within the church. So it shouldn't surprise us at all today if we must be about the same thing and contend for the faith with professing Christians. The New Testament teaching is that the faith will repeatedly be threatened from within, which leads us to the final point, namely that every genuine believer should contend for the faith. This little letter is not written to pastors, is it? See that in verse 1? It's written to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. It is not written to Timothy. It's written to you, all of us. And therefore, the duty in verse 3 is not a duty that belongs merely to Steve Roy when he's ordained, though I think it belongs in a special way to him. It belongs to all of you to contend for the faith. And so we would do well to try to flesh out what this involves. And I'm going to let Jude do it for us down in verse 20 and 21. In verse 20 and 21, he tells us how to prepare ourselves to contend. In verses 22 and 23, he tells us some of the ways to contend. Look at the preparation in verse 20. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. In other words, the best thing you can do to become a church that is effective in contending for the faith is to be built on the faith. Build, grow, meditate, study. The best defense is a good offense. 
The best way to contend with all the cults is to know the Bible, not to study the cults forever, to know the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Then he mentions prayer. Prayer is an indispensable part of contending. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Unless we seek the mind of the Spirit in our contending, we won't grow ourselves in the faith and we'll be weak contenders. Then go to verse 22. The actual contending. What what does that involve? He says, convince some who doubt. Save some by snatching them out of the fire. On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Here, what he focuses in on is the way we contend for those victims that are falling prey to the false teachers. And there are two things involved, it seems like. There's a convincing. There's, there's going after their minds. Convince them. They're all confused and they're doubting now, having heard this other teaching. Go convince them. Labor to make it plain. And then there's the the more heart side. There's the moral side of reclamation where it says that they've gone into sin that is so filthy that you don't even want to be near them, maybe, or touch their clothing. But go get them anyway and bring them back. There's this moral reclamation and this mental transformation. These two dimensions to contending for the faith. And they always go together, don't they? Contending for the faith ought never to be a merely academic enterprise because the root of false teaching is not weak minds. It's proud hearts. The mind is generally just kicked in to justify what the heart wants real bad. And so you you would fail if you tried to contend for the faith only working in the realm of ideas. There has to be that unction from the Holy Spirit. There has to be that love for the destiny of the person that they be rescued from the, from the flame. And then together, the mental effort to make things plain and understandable and the moral and spiritual effort to pray and to love them into the fold are the things that are really going to pay off in the end. That's why Peter says in, in his first letter, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with humility and fear. In other words, the way we contend is just as important as the content of our contentions. You can win with your logic and lose with your life. So in summary, there are four things. There is a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We've inherited it in a book. This faith is worth contending for. It's worth dying for. It will repeatedly throughout history be threatened from within the church. And fourth, therefore, it is the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith. And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us before the throne of his glory with rejoicing. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.